certainly there's cause to see him as a ladies' man because of the more well-known interactions he had with some of the women of his time. But I think a closer look at the biblical text will reveal that David himself placed a very high value on male friendship. The Bible mentions that David had many friends from many different positions in life, just to name a few, Abiathar the priest. We, learn, we will learn that in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 23. We'll meet a man named Hushai the archite in 2 Samuel chapter 15. Also, Ittai the Gittite was a close friend of David. We also meet him in 2 Samuel chapter 15. David had a group of mighty men that followed him around, that were very loyal to him, that were apparently friends of his. David was a man who valued male friendship. But it's clear that the best friend that David ever had, the one that he valued the most, was a man by the name of Jonathan. Apparently, David never was blessed with the position that he might enjoy a relationship with his brother. In chapter 17, the chapter we just finished, at the early part of that chapter, we witnessed what a jerk his older brother Eliab had been to him just before David fought Goliath. We're not told of Eliab's attitude right after the battle, but I suspect it was not overwhelmingly positive. But having experienced the rejection of Eliab before the battle, David was blessed after the battle with an enduring friendship with this man named Jonathan. It disgusts me, but I may as well go ahead and get something out of the way at the beginning of this discussion. A man by the name of Tom Horner wrote a book back in 1978 entitled Jonathan Loves David, Homosexuality in Biblical Times, in which he concluded that the relationship between Jonathan and David was homosexual in nature. Because of our current cultural tolerance turned celebration toward homosexuality, many have picked up on this since 1978, and it's now a popular view. That's the only reason I address it at all tonight, because I'm sure that at one point or another you've heard that view. It's difficult for me to come up with the appropriate words to denounce such a view and maintain my sanctification. I will just say that such a view is perverted, it's ridiculous, it's insulting, and at best, at best, reflects extremely poor biblical scholarship. The accusation that Horner and others make is based upon the use of the term love in our passage tonight, 1 Samuel chapter 18. It's the Hebrew term ahav. It's used to describe the relationship between these two men. It is a love relationship between two males. But let me make this as clear as I can possibly make it. Only the perverse would assume that because these two men loved each other, that it follows that the relationship was somehow homosexual. The problem is that there's, a, there's an abundance of perversity out there today. And they want to see perversity, something that looks like them under every rock. That is simply not the case here. 
years ago, some of these perverse types accused me of homosexuality. The reason that, thank you for being shy. The reason that, <laughs> the reason that they accused me of homosexuality is because I went to Bible class almost every night of the week and drove with the same fellows. We carpooled and we, we went to Bible class. So because of that, they said, Bruce and this other fellow must be an unusual theological standing before you tonight. More recently, the swirl is used again by some Neanderthals when they found out that love was being preached and promoted from the pulpit of this church. As an expression of their maturity in Christ, they proclaimed that Pine Valley was a homosexual church with a homosexual pastor. The actual wording of that was a bit more crude, but I'll spare you. This time, because I am much more mature than I was back then, I just laughed that off. But I'm forced to conclude that brothers in Christ expressing such vitriol have some serious psychological and spiritual issues that they they need to address personally and personally. So I've had this happen to me. I know what it's like to have these just really silly things thrown in your way for the most silly of reasons. But back to David and Jonathan. With regard... To this word ahav that's used to describe a relationship between these two men. This word ahav is not used elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible to refer to homosexual activity. For that, the Old Testament uses another term, yada, which is translated to know, and then is used euphemistically oftentimes for sexual relationships. Excuse me, it's a euphemism for sexual activity. This term is never used of the relationship between Jonathan and Ruth. That's why I mentioned before that at best this idea is based upon extremely poor scholarship. Scholarship that I lay in way too high for this agenda. Sometimes people have an agenda and they go to the Bible and try to find anything they they can possibly find in order to promote that agenda. That's all I'd like to say about that. This is a love relationship, one of maximum integrity between two incredible men that have nothing wrong with each other whatsoever. It's a shame that our culture today has perverted them so we even have to mention it here. But I move on. David and Jonathan enjoyed the blessing of intimacy. I do admit who do not or have not enjoyed true intimacy. Edward Everett Hale said, the making of friends who are real friends is the best token we have of a man's satisfaction. While we might not agree that it's the best token, I think we would concur that at least it is a significant token of satisfaction. We can't be certain how much time has passed between the end of 1 Samuel chapter 17 and the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 18, but I'd invite you to turn to 1 Samuel Samuel chapter 17 now, the end of it, and just to refresh your memory as to where we've gone, 1 Samuel chapter chapter 17 was David fighting Goliath, but it ended this way, beginning of verse 55. Now when Saul saw David going out against the Philistines, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this young man? And Abner said, by your life, O king, I do not know. 
And the king said, Inquire whose son to you is. So when David returned from killing the Philistine, also from the rout of the Philistine, when David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head in his hand. Notice the name of the hometown that was supposed to have been Jotheth, but our way of thinking says that was his cousin or his identity. In verse 58, And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. Then we move on into chapter 18, verse 1. Now it came about when, when he had finished speaking to Saul. There is an elapse of time here. This isn't necessarily strictly sequential, one thing one day led to the next, although there are some who feel that. But this, there has been some time that has elapsed in between the end of this chapter 17 and the beginning of chapter 18. We don't know how much time it was, but the time was sufficient for David and Jonathan to establish a kingship. The reason I bring that up here is it wasn't from one day to the next. A kingship like Jonathan and David doesn't typically happen within a 24-hour period. Usually it takes a little bit more time to develop the type of kingship that is spoken of here. Since we began our study of the life of David in 1 Samuel chapter 16, Jonathan is a new figure for us in this study. So I want to tell you just a little bit about him. Jonathan was older than David by probably 12 to 15 years. He's most likely in his early 30s when David was in his late teens. We said that when David fought Goliath, he was probably around 18 years old. Somewhere at 17, 18, 19, but somewhere in the late teens. So Jonathan's already in his early 30s when this happens. David is significantly younger. Today we would call him a teenager. But in that culture, back then, a male 18 to 19 years old was considered a man. In fact, the designation teenager is a relatively new category. The designation teenager really didn't come about until the until the days of the Industrial Revolution. It would have not have been unusual at all for a man 18 years old to have a friendship with a man who's 32 years old. In the beginning, I'm sure that David was deferential toward Jonathan. Jonathan, after all, was the eldest son of King Saul, who was a mighty warrior in his own right. It's a question that all of us have that nobody can answer because the text is silent. Why didn't Jonathan answer Goliath's call when Goliath cried him out? The Bible never tells us, so we don't know exactly why that happened. Nevertheless, God used it providentially to raise David a mighty Jonathan actually comes to our attention first in 1 Samuel chapter 13. At the time he comes to our attention, he's already the commander-in-chief of Saul's army, the armies of Israel. He's portrayed in those early chapters as a very competent leader and an extremely brave warrior. One episode that's particularly revealing as to Jonathan's character is recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 14. The Jews and the Philistines, as they were wont to do back then, were were in conflict. They were in war. And the the Jews at this time, go back to chapter 14, the Jews at that time were at a significant disadvantage to the Philistines because the Jews didn't have the raw materials that it took in order to manufacture weapons. So when you're trying to fight chariots or swords or other weapons that that require iron and bronze, and you've got nothing that's like that at all, you're going to be at a serious disadvantage. 
so the Jews weren't holding their own, but there's somewhat of a stalemate that's taking place in the Lord. It was then, at the time of the stalemate, that Jonathan, who's the commander of the army, who's the king's son, we can call him Prince John, if, if you will, actually we ought to call him Prince John for the good reason of all, because something he's going to do toward the end of our lesson tonight is going to be extremely significant and extremely telling about this man's character. Prince Jonathan decides to take matters into his own hands. He's the commander of the army. He decides not to wait around, not to get permission from his father. So without telling his father, Jonathan and his armor bearer slip off from the main army in Israel, head off into Philistine territory, which is very rocky territory, and decide that they themselves, Jonathan and the armor bearer, are going to take out one of the Philistine outposts all by themselves. To anybody observing this, this would have looked like a suicide mission. If I pick up the narrative from 1 Samuel chapter 14 and beginning in verse 6, then Jonathan said to the young man who was his armor carrier, his armor bearer, come and let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. David is the more well-known of the two, by a long shot. No question. He's by far the more well-known of the two. Jonathan just kind of provides us the background sometimes. So Jonathan is an extremely brave man on his own. Jonathan also was a spiritual man. In fact, he used that term. He knew where the victory would come from. And what he's basically saying is that, listen, this, the battle is the Lord's. That's what he's saying in just so, in so many words. And he's saying, well, the Lord can use one person or two people or whole armies if he sees fit, like he sees he wants to use one or two instead of a whole army. Then in verse 7, and his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Turn yourself. And here am I with you according to your desire. In other words, the armor bearer says, hey, I'm in. So verse 8, then Jonathan said, behold, we will cross to the men and we will to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place and not go up against them. Let me give you just a, a tiny bit of background without going back too far. There was this stalemate, but the view of the Philistines was that the Jews were hiding out, hiding out in caves. As soon as they came out, then, then we're going to wipe them out. So their mindset is going to be, well, they finally show themselves. Let's wipe them out. Jonathan's idea is, we're going to go out there. And if they say, well, hold off, or we're going to come to you, in case they want to do some sort of negotiation, and Jonathan really doesn't want to be part of that. He's not going to choose to negotiate. But if they start this trash talking, then Jonathan figures that's the Lord's sign that he's going to go up there and, and take them out. Remember, he's by himself, except for his armor bearer. So now verse 10, but if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hands, and this shall be a sign for us. And when both of them revealed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, the Philistines said, Behold, the Hebrews are coming out of, them, uh, out of the hole where they have hidden themselves. So the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will tell you something. Hey, the view from this is they could, could possibly be that you could possibly fill in the blanks there. Come on up, and we're going to show you something. Come on, up, I got something here for you. That's basically what is being said here. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me. For the Lord has
says, give a miracle that you're not going to believe in. Two, to explain the purpose of God's plan for your life. That's the third one. These three covenants, while separated by 12 scripture years, are one covenant. Very similar covenant. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer put some to death at the hands. That first clause, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, is about 20 men within about half a furrow from the Ajalon boundary. And there was trembling in the camp, in the field, and among the people, even the garrison and the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked so that it became a great shaking. Again, a similar situation. Jonathan goes up there and he tears them up on top of that crest. When that happens, the rest of the Philistine army sees this whole outpost taken out and they start freaking out and then there's going to be a rout. A couple things about this text before we get back to the other ones. Jonathan demonstrates humility. David didn't go out to fight Goliath because he thought he was some sort of bad man. He went out because there was talking to armies that were really young. He said it like this when he became God and the Philistines. He was Yahweh's representative. It's the same way with Jonathan. Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. Not, I'm going to go up there and I'm going to tear some people up. The Lord has given these people in. Again, you see the parallels between these two men. That's my reason for going back here. I want you to see the similarities between Jonathan and David. Half a furrow is an, in an acre of land was the amount of land a yoke of oxen could plow in half a day rocky soil. It's not that easy soil to plow, but it's a relatively small area. There's no specific kind of area. That's how it's described. The amount of land a yoke of oxen could plow in half a day. The point being that it wasn't like Jonathan defeated someone here, ran another 100 yards over there and, and fought someone else, and then ran another 400 yards over here and fought someone else all one at a time. It would be more like Everything taking place out of the gymnasium in in fairly close quarters. Now you could see it if you've got Jonathan and one other fellow. Jonathan's doing most of the fighting, fighting everybody in a space like that where there's at least 20 men coming at you. This is more this is more like Jack Bauer. This guy is really he's getting after it, or like Willie Wallace and Braveheart. It's one of those kind of battles where everybody is all on him. It's one of the most magnificent battles that's recorded in the Hebrew Bible. Unfortunately, it's forgotten by most because of the more famous battle that would come a couple chapters later. I just wanted you to see that in Jonathan, David certainly has a hero. As a postscript to that story, Saul responds, and it's not going to happen here when he finds out what Jonathan has done. But actually, it's a bit of a long story. But rather than being grateful for what his son had accomplished, he instead becomes jealous. And he makes a scapegoat of his son, Jonathan. It actually lands on him on a technicality. And he's going to execute him and kill some of the soldiers in the room. But it happens. I bring that up to introduce the idea that there were problems between Jonathan and Saul. Jonathan is a loyal son. But this is, this is going to be a prelude to what's going to happen later. When he sees his father treat someone else with rashness, it seems to be something that Jonathan can handle as long as Saul is treating him miraculously. But as soon as David comes into the picture and he sees his father treating 
greatest wrongs that are at the site are greatest, then there begins to be a fissure that develops between Jonathan and Saul. But the fissure, the cracks that became that fissure had already started earlier on, as they do oftentimes. Early on in their experience, there was irrational behavior on Saul's part that Jonathan is a testament to. The relationship was strained, but as time went on, Jonathan remained with him, and in the end died with him on the, in the battle of Mount Gilboa. The statement that we read, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Those two statements, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and the second statement, Jonathan loved David as himself, are parallel statements. With the second of those statements giving us an idea as to what the first of those statements means. Let me say that again. There's two statements there. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved David as himself. Those two statements are parallel statements. The second of the two helps to explain the first one. I don't know about you, but the first one is what leads one to find such a meaning. It's, it's more complicated to figure out what does it mean that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David than it does that David or that Jonathan loved David as himself. We all get that one. I mean, that's an Old Testament concept. It's a New Testament concept. But what does it mean for these two souls to be knitted together? It has nothing to do with sin. It has to do with the friendship of the soul. And that friendship of the soul, this knitting together, was established by the fact that Jonathan had this attitude toward David. He loved him as he loved himself. Now, that is a selfless attitude, not a selfish attitude. It's a selfless attitude. True friendship is selfless, not selfish. True friendship is selfless, not selfish. That's what we would see described in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1. Many people think that they want a friend when what they really want is someone to fill some emotional or psychological need that they have. Hence, that type of person is a taker, not a giver. And as time goes by, folks that are like that, that are consensually takers and not givers, they're trying to attach themselves to people because of what that person could do for them rather than perhaps what they could do for that person. As time goes by, that person's friends, and I put that in quotes, tend to fade off. They tend to have a harder time making friends, and they wonder why. Well, I'll tell you why. Because that's not friendship, my friends. Friendship isn't me taking from you. Friendship is me giving to you, and it's a back-and-forth relationship. It can't be one-sided, or it's not a friendship. It may be something. It may be psychologically fulfilling for one or the other of the people, but it's not a friendship. True friendship is selfless, and that's the theme for tonight. True biblical friendship is selfless, not selfish. So if you find yourself having a hard time making friends or keeping friends, Maybe you need to rethink what a friendship is. A friendship is not just about somebody else fulfilling all your needs for you. And as soon as they don't fulfill the needs for you, you turn it on them. That happens. If I love you 
speaking because of what you can do for me, then I'm not really loving you. What happens when I don't feel that way? The other individual is going to turn on me or you very, very quickly. And you're going to find out that they weren't really afraid at all. They wanted to fight you. They wanted to be around you, but they wanted to be around you because of something you could do for them. That's not kingship. They were tempted. You're, you call that relationship something, but you can't call it kingship, not in the biblical sense. If Joel and Jonathan and David were to get together, later on we'll find out that both of them loved the other one as they did themselves. Although their souls were knitted together, which is key, they were not absorbed with each other. There is something of absorption in the marriage relationship. I think that's reasonably a part of life. And the marriage relationship also is a friendship, to be sure. But in non-marriage relationships, which is my question to you, the same absorption with each other is not Lewis, who married later in life, after having developed quite a few extremely strong male friendships, one of one of which uh, today are, are Tolkien, was the Lord of the Rings. In fact, Tolkien credits Lewis with the Lord of the Rings even being finished. Had it not been for Lewis, Tolkien may, may have never finished it. These men were extremely close friends. But C.S. Lewis wrote this. He put it this way. The error here has been to assimilate all forms of affection to that special form we call friendship. It indeed does imply the quality, but it is quite different from various loves within the same household. Friends are not primarily absorbed in each other. It's when we are doing things together that friendships spring up. Painting, sailing ships, praying, philosophizing, fighting shoulder to shoulder. Friends look in the same direction. Lovers look at each other. Again, the key idea there is friends look in the same direction. Lovers look at each other. That's what I mean by being absorbed in one another. And it is normal and it is good for husband and wife to be looking at each other and to be absorbed into one another. And it's reasonable for husband and wife to also be friends. We're not talking about that. That's a separate category thing. But when we talk about male friend to male friends, or female friend with female friends, we get into trouble when our eyes are totally focused on that other person. True friendship, Lewis says, and I have to agree with this, is true, true friends will, will stand side by side and look at the same things and appreciate that. But they're not going to be so focused upon each other that if one of them doesn't call them when they're supposed to call them, they get all upset about that. That's not a true friendship. Something's wrong with that. Again, friends look in the same direction. Lovers look at each other. There's a bit of a difference. A crush is not a friendship. This is no small thing. I observed way, at the time, have observed way too many Christians develop what amounts to a crush on another person, whether it's male or female. And when that other person, person doesn't live up to their expectations, may I use this word fantasy? They create a fantasy in their soul of what that other person should be. And then when the other person doesn't live up to the fantasy, and who can't, 
we can't live up to what somebody else imagines you to be, then instead of being objective about it, they tend to tear the other person down. And that's not true friendship. Actually, it's childish. And it's unacceptable behavior for one who claims to be walking in fellowship with God. Watch. Jesus Christ is the only being that we have anything that's being fully absorbed in. That includes a husband and wife. Now, it's normal to be absorbed in your husband and wife, or your husband or wife, but Jesus Christ is the only being we should be totally absorbed in. But when it comes to male friend with male friend, or female friend with female friend, we, we ought to be very careful not to become absorbed with each other. That's not the, the biblical idea of friendship. In fact, the Bible has a lot to say about friendship. I just mentioned a few things. Proverbs 11.13, a friend keeps company. Proverbs 17.9, true friendship is durable and faithful. True friendships are not shipwrecked over minor things. A friend can, can, can provide wise counsel. That's Proverbs chapter 27, verse 17. The friend's going to be there for you to pick you up after you after you fall. That's Ecclesiastes chapter 4. That's just to mention a few. But sometimes it does take a verse to supply that void with it. And I hope you don't have to go through that. But sometimes that's what it takes. The Apostle Paul is one such friend. We found out during his real friendship, and during the second adversity, he even writes about it. Everybody's left there except Philemon and Tunis. Now, some of them that left him left him for a different reason. But it's very clear there that he knew that that some who left him would not leave him for the good of others. And he tried to be very faithful to that friend. Chapter 18, verse 2. And Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and fought him. And Saul set him over the men of war, and it was pleasing in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's friends. Jonathan demonstrates incredible humility. I don't know if you caught it there, but there's at least two ways that he demonstrates an incredible humility. First of all, who does he say is the commander of the army back in First Samuel chapter 13? It's Jonathan who's ultimately the commander to begin with. But here, David is put above both of them. And it doesn't seem as though Jonathan has a real problem with this. He makes a symbolic gesture by stripping himself of the robe that is on him, the garment of a prince, and the armor that went along with his position in the army. And he gave it to David, including his sword, his bow, and his belt. What he's doing is he's saying, I have no problem with two things in life. I had no problem with the promotion that my father gave me. And somehow I have to think that Jonathan had no problem with the promotion that Yahweh gave him. Or it's not clear that Jonathan knows at this point for sure that David is the one that's anointed to take his father's place. But it looks like he's starting to get the idea that this is the fellow that's going to be the next king of Israel and not me. We do know who should have been saluted by cultural standards the next king of Israel. Shouldn't have died. He's the next one in line. Most people who are the next in line to be king, they just give it up right away. 
because there's a lot to do in church. There's a lot of honor. There's a lot of money. There's a lot of prestige. But here Jonathan chose, and he's afraid that they okay with Jonathan that that is what he did. What happened? He abdicates, in a sense, his position as prince over Israel without a second thought. This shows once again that Jonathan is a selfless human being. He's not a perfect human being. I don't want to paint that picture. He's not a perfect human being, but he's a selfless human being, and he's also a selfless parent. the way that God hardwires our nervous system, our soul, is that we have a need for human companionship. I would even go as far as saying we have a need for friendship. And we certainly all want friends. The Roman philosopher Cicero, who was, of course, not a Christian, agreed. He said, friendship is the only thing in the world concerning the usefulness of which all mankind agrees. All cultures value we're to have meaningful friendship, we must remember this primary principle. True friendship.